All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 244 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and on Friday night I accidentally went to a Rod Stewart tribute act. Oh my god. Did you stay on a bus too long? <laughs> no, it wasn't It wasn't a bus related Rod Stewart incident. Did he pay for you to have a scan? I can't remember the story as to why Rod Stewart or a Rod Stewart alike might have paid for me to have a scan of anything. He's Joe. very unhappy with the Tory administration and he's very sad that people aren't getting the scans they need because he recently was able to get a scan that he could afford to pay for. So he's paid for a load of people in Essex to have scans for illnesses basically oh good old rod it wasn't the actual rod stewart i hasten to add right because i was in a place that very much reminded me of do you remember that time when we were near harwich and an old man near me fell over and hurt himself no we were in harwich it was a town related to harwich wasn't dover court which is like it's it's harwich yeah yeah do so you remember when i was near that old man who threw a pint on himself and fell over burned onto my (laughs) brain forever It was a very similar vibe, but with the dulcet tones of Baby Jane in the background. (laughs) Incredible scene. Did the pretend Rod Stewart give you a pretend scan? Yeah, but I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) My friend, and this will make the mind boggle, my friend recently went to a meatloaf tribute act in Clacton on purpose. On purpose. Mm -hmm. And I was actually like, fuck, I wish I'd gone to that. I tell you what, Steve was very good. (laughs) Did he have a comedy name? God Stewart. Or are you talking about meatloaf? Yeah. Yeah, or any of them. I don't know about meatloaf. I'm going to find out. Not loaf. (laughs) 
I don't think Steve, I, I didn't catch his surname. I don't think Steve had a comedy pun on Rod Stewart. Neither was he dressed in, you know, all those albums that Rod Stewart did in kind of the 80s mm-hmm. where he's in a tuxedo, but with the bow tie undone, with sort of a headless woman wrapped around him. And any of the albums should have just been called, guess what I've just done? <laughs> sex. Just done the sex. He wasn't dressed like that either. He was really, really good. If you like a bit of Rod Stewart, which I do, partial, he was excellent. If anyone's interested, the flower pot in Walthamstow, May the 5th, Steve's got a night all of his own. Boom. Come along. Lovely stuff. Can I ask how old Steve is? I think he was about the same height and age as the actual Rod Stewart. <laughs> good to know. I'll send you a little video we took. It's it's incredible. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and my dream of becoming the last hope of humanity has perished. The road trip with Pedro Pascal is off. I am sorry that you have got the Rona, but also I'm going to say that that journey doesn't look fun. I'm loving The Last of Us, but I wouldn't want to be in their situation. Three years after it was exciting, I caught COVID. I'm not sure it was ever exciting (laughs) to have coronavirus. Three years after it was vaguely interesting to have COVID, I caught COVID. You've missed the zeitgeist, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I've missed the point at which it's convenient and easy to get tests, that Mm. sort of thing. Mm. (coughs) A little bit of an example for you there. (laughs) Some evidence. I'll do a nose blow, but we'll cut this out. (laughs) I'm enjoying listening. I'm Jen Offord, and I've finally sewn something which isn't for me. Oh, what have you made I've of? made a little spotty t-shirt for her. And it's all right. It's not shit. It's lovely. I've seen it on the yeah. gram and it looks very cute. Yeah. That's it. That's all I've got. Life has been really quite dull. <laughs> We've been busy making a small spotty exactly. t-shirt. Exactly. Keep May the 5th free though, Jen. Oh, I will. You can come and watch uh, Not Rod. I mean, even if just, just for some facts. Coming up, I talked to Louise Lockwood and Nancy Borner about Frida Kahlo and their three-part documentary about the artist becoming Frida Kahlo, which starts this week on The Beeb, and it's really good. I chat to Kate McCaffrey, assistant curator at Hever Castle, the childhood home of Anne Boleyn, about this new exhibition, Catherine and Anne, Queen's Rivals Mothers. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about athletics and a big new deal in women's sport. And you want a toe? I can get you a toe. <laughs> because in this week's Rated or Dated, we're watching 1998's The Big Lebowski. But first, boats, bell ends, and some really bad policies. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where if a man accused of breaking his wife's nose and forcefully smacking a female MP on the bottom isn't seen as deserving of a knighthood, then, I don't know, I just don't think we can trust Boris Johnson's judgment anymore, Jen. (sighs) I mean, I mean, it's literally like, what, three days after the breaking news bombshell that surprised us all that he might have misled Parliament over (laughs) his uh, lockdown parties. And then, uh, oh, look, who's he nominating for a knighthood, Mick? Stanley Johnson, his dad. It looks really good, doesn't it? I think it really makes politics look good when you're able to, as a former Prime Minister, nominate your own father for a knighthood. I think it is a very good indictment on our current political yeah. system. I mean, at least he didn't make his own brother appear. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Totally no, he did, did didn't he? Totally he? Did. Yeah. I actually he don't did. understand the outcry, though. I've seen a lot of this is this is so, you know, it's ruining the system, blah, blah, blah. The system's kind of outdated anyway. But, like, Johnson does not care about taking the piss. He is 
clearly no. never cared about taking the piss. No. Why do people think he would start to care about taking the piss now he's left? <sighs> like from the second that he was asked, how many children have you got? And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, like, uh, uh. <laughs> this man doesn't fucking care. He doesn't fucking care. He doesn't. He's having a lovely time. And he just doesn't fucking care about literally any other human being in the world. Johnson's going to Johnson, isn't he? The total Johnson. He is. And weird people are going to defend him anyway. In the latest update to the government's chaotic dealings with migrants crossing the channel to gain entry to Britain, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced at the weekend that he would make ending immoral, that's his words, not mine, immoral immigration a priority. Speaking to the Mail on Sunday, he said, make no mistake, if you come here illegally, you will not be able to stay. And what will happen to you? Well, under proposed new legislation, the Home Secretary will have a duty to remove anyone arriving on a small boat as soon as is, and I quote, reasonably practicable, and deport them to Rwanda, or somewhere else a bit safer if they are, say, gay, for example, and then impose a lifetime ban on them re-entering the country, which is a little bit more serious than what happens to you if you're caught shouting racist abuse at a football match, but I imagine it's similarly tricky to enforce. Yeah. Okay, I mean, let's not dwell for too long on the argument that you could predict <laughs> I would make, which is and that... And also me, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is that it is, to use Sunak's word, immoral to deny refuge to people who need it. I think you've used the word immoral correctly and Sunak has used the word immoral incorrectly. I would agree with that, Mm. obviously. (laughs) Let's instead focus on the very, very obvious operational (laughs) flaws here. So to start with, as of right now, no one has been sent to Rwanda yet, Mm. right? Because although the High Court has now ruled that that scheme is lawful, there are other legal challenges being made here. Because I don't know if you've picked up on it, people feel quite strongly. They really <laughs> about do. How they really fucking do. shit this policy is. Secondly, it has taken us quite a long time to process the people who are already here. That is not going to cease to be a problem. And I would just like to add that the use of the words reasonably practicable does not indicate that there will be any kind of like onus on them to do it quickly <laughs> so, yeah so. i've got this bit of string how long is it oh i'll measure it when i can as someone who has uh in their time helped to change a law when i was a civil servant i can tell you <laughs> that they use the word reasonably practical quite deliberately anyway thirdly and this is this is a biggie the people crossing the channel are already doing so illegally so it feels unrealistic to me to imagine that they would just stop trying because the government has checks notes made it more illegal. It was illegal, but now it's like really illegal. I think, Mick, I think that Rishi Sunak knows this. Mm. And if I were a cynic... Which you are. <laughs> I, I am, to be fair. I might suggest that this is just populist shite to distract from further chat about his Tupperware cake at Boris Johnson's lockdown bunga bunga birthday party and some awkward WhatsApp messages published in the Daily Telegraph last week. I am also a cynic, though, so, you know, that's why I, I think you, you're correct. 
Let's be clear, there are no safe legal routes to people seeking asylum in the UK. Last week, at least 63 migrants died off the coast of Italy, including 12 children and a baby. These people are not travelling by small boats for lols. They are desperate. And this is bullshit. It is total bullshit. It's just inhumane, isn't it? Oh, it's horrible. It's very, very depressing. The sad thing is there is a market for this policy. Yeah, totally. The fact, you know, Sunak spoke to the Mail on Sunday. Well, of course he fucking did. Yeah. Did you perchance, Jen, see the QR code that Rishi Sunak put out yesterday on Twitter? No. <laughs> What's this? <laughs> He's very zeitgeist, is our Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the QR code, which was the thing, I don't know. Do you use them? Oh, I used this one. Or at least, let's say, Jen, (laughs) I tried to use this one, but it meant that I had to download something from Adobe called Adobe Aero, which I didn't have and I don't want, so I didn't. And it's sort of um, augmented reality. (laughs) Sorry. It's so fucking funny. I did retweet it from our account if anyone's interested. Someone, thankfully, did put the legwork in for the people who were just like, I'm not downloading that. What's, What's this? And when you do use it correctly, and it doesn't glitch as it does on Android and iOS, but there we go, 3D writing comes at you through the screen, and it says, scientific brilliance by 2030. And words come up in really weird places, and it looks like it was designed by a seven-year-old after too much squash. It's insane. Their graphics people have really (laughs) been like, over the last couple of years, like really doing some work haven't they like i see loads of stuff that they put out the conservative party that looks like when they used to advertise P&O tickets for a pound in the sun yeah. like back uh-huh. in the day i see quite a lot of stuff that looks like that and just i just look at it, i'm like who's coming up with the concepts who's putting it together you've got a lot of money we know how much money you guys have got you can do better i think their creative director if that is what the title of this person is <laughs> clearly votes labor <laughs> it's like <laughs> Doing an inside job. But yeah, there's a huge difference, a huge difference between retro and fucking shit. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, if you're listening to this podcast, Box Fresh, on Wednesday the 8th of March, then you're listening on International Women's Day. I guess my big recommend for International Women's Day is to follow the gender pay gap bot on Twitter, which is at pay gap app, calling out all of the organisations pretending to recognise the women that work for them by revealing how much lower those women's median hourly pay is than the men's who work for them. No prizes for guessing how many companies fail at one of the very first hurdles. Mm. Anyway, that small whinge is perhaps a step up from last year when I put International Women's Day in the Sexism of the Week sin bin. What a monster! My dreams for IWD remain the same, though. Some tangible goals and the detailed, evidence-based and, crucially, well-funded plans to realise them. Here, here. In the meantime, because apparently it'll take 136 years to close the gender gap, so I have a bit of time on my hands until we can celebrate that... This International Women's Day, I'm going to celebrate one international woman in particular, Judy Human. I was genuinely gutted to read that this brilliant, indomitable disability activist has died aged 75. Judy Human has been called the mother of the disability rights movement in the US for her longtime advocacy on behalf of disabled people through protests and legal action. 
She was at the forefront of major disability rights demonstrations, helped spearhead the passage of laws, founded national and international advocacy organisations, served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations, and her activism led to the implementation of major legislation in the United States. Now, I first fell in love with Judy Human while watching 2020 Netflix documentary Crip Camp, which you should watch if you haven't. Watch again if you have. And fell in love might seem like hyperbole, but she genuinely, totally blew me away with her spirit, her sense of humour and her determination to make things better for the people most often left at the bottom of the intersectionality pile. Disability only becomes a tragedy when society fails to provide the things we need to lead our lives. That is a Judy Human quote from 1987. And during her lifetime, she helped make a whole lot of change happen when it comes to disability rights. But there is still a lot of work to do. There really is. Would you like some good news, Mick? I would like some good news. Yes, please, Jen. Do I have to scan a QR code? <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you would like some good news, and I am delighted to tell you that reality TV contestant Stephen Bear, who I'd never heard of either before this court case, is that his real name? I think it actually is. I don't. I don't know. He's been jailed for twenty-one months for sharing a video of him having sex with his then partner Georgia Harrison without her consent. Good. This, that is good yes. news. The that jail bit, news. not the rest of it, obviously. No, the rest of it is shit news, yeah. to be that fair. That tends to be how our good news works, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of this is not great news, to be fair. Uh, the 33-year-old Wankstain shared CCTV footage of him having sex with Harrison, which he then uploaded to OnlyFans for some cold hard cash. What a charmer. Mm. Acting like an absolute bellend before, during and after the sentencing. Consistent. <laughs> really consistent. He posed outside court for selfies and sang Lady in Red to a reporter covering the case. Fucking hell. Still, he'll be on the sex offenders register after he's released, so let's see how lols it all is then, shall we? He is officially my least favourite bear. <laughs> Fair. A former Love Island contestant herself, Harrison waived her right to anonymity in order to progress this case. And good for her for using her platform to highlight what I can only imagine is an extremely common occurrence in this digital age and indeed has happened to me. Mm. As you know, Mick, but I have not actually said that on this podcast before. You kind of hinted at it. I've hinted at it, but I've never actually said it and I felt emboldened by Harrison emboldened is that the right word yeah yeah I felt, yeah empowered, I felt like maybe, in, empowered in empowered yeah. is the word yeah because and I that's think, why like, it's so good that she's done it and so exactly and good that you've done it so thank you because other people will go and do it now although voyeurism should be a lot more straightforward if the police do their jobs properly <laughs> <laughs> sorry can we just laugh for a full 20 minutes yeah Cases where intimate photos or videos are shared have been historically extremely difficult to prosecute. Mm. This is because of a ridiculous qualification in the existing law, which requires prosecutors to prove that the accused intended to cause harm in the sharing of them. I would argue, as would most people, (laughs) you cannot not cause harm without the explicit consent to share from the other person or people involved. But the government is still catching up here because fuck it, women, eh? Interestingly, Jen, I think the people Mm. who wouldn't argue that are people who have shared it without permission and the people defending them in court. 
if it gets I would that agree. Mm, yeah. I, I would agree. Now, there is an amendment tabled to the online safety bill, which will make it an offence to share intimate images without consent and creates two more serious offences where intent to cause harm, distress or for obtaining sexual gratification can be proved. Let's hope that bill goes through soon. I mean, I can't think of any other reason that they would be sharing it. I mean, I suppose, and I think probably this is the argument that is used a lot, you could argue... Well, I didn't realise. And I would counter-argue you'd have to be thick as pig shit to not realise. But some people are thick as pig shit. It does happen, you know? I guess the argument would be, well, I just showed it to a mate. So, you know, Mm. does it really matter? And again, I would argue, yes. Yes, it does matter. Yeah, I think you'd struggle a little bit more with defending it being uploaded to OnlyFans, obviously, as oh, yes. my least yeah. favourite bear did, uh, yes. hence why he's now behind bars. Yes, and I think and I think that what happened to him was because he took that action, he's obviously upped the ante a little bit. It's not just like he has shared it with a mate. He's literally put it on the internet for everyone to see and he's completely fucking humiliated her. And then he's shown zero remorse at any point throughout the legal proceedings. What an absolute sloppy shit puddle of a human being. Agreed. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I will not be wishing you a happy International Women's Day. In fact, it's that time of the year where I will not be wishing you a happy International Women's Day. All around the world, women and girls still aren't able to fully participate in all aspects of social, economic and political life. Women and girls have less choice and less voice and achieving equality on these fundamental matters is, it seems, women's work that we're meant to squeeze in around everything else we're doing, as if we caused this mess in the first place. Oh, sorry, have I have I just snuck International Women's Day into the sexism of the week simbin again this year? It's good to have a tradition, eh? Anyway, one aspect of being a woman that can massively affect our social and economic life is the menopause, or more precisely, the perimenopause. A little reminder that the menopause is actually just one day. The day a woman hits one full year without a period is the day she reaches menopause. Most women I know have flaps of steel, so I reckon they could deal with just one day of this shit, right? But the perimenopause, now that is a trickier beast that can bring a plethora of symptoms and can last four to eight years, sometimes more. Those symptoms really vary from woman to woman, but many of them can be hugely deleterious to everyday life. It's no coincidence that suicide in women is at its highest between the ages of 45 Mm. to 54. According to research from Channel 4 and the Fawcett Society, which polled 4,000 women aged 45 to 55, one in 10 women leave the workforce because of menopause symptoms. Nearly one in seven had reduced their hours at work, while nearly two-thirds said they had lost motivation at work and half said they had lost confidence. Those stats are not small fry. Mm. And so there was a bit of a hoo-ha last week when Women and Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch said that the government would not be adding menopause as a protected characteristic to the Equality Act 2010. And she also rejected a suggestion to start a trial of menopause leave. This would be a pilot that would give women paid leave from work, a bit like maternity leave and separate from sick leave. 
stating that companies, individual companies, rather than the government, could do that. And instead, the government were encouraging employees to better support women going through the menopause as part and parcel of work culture. Now, I totally understand why the fairly abrupt manner, and that is putting it mildly, in which she delivered these statements and her complaint that the pilot menopause leave for women was being proposed from, quote, a left-wing perspective, got people's backs up. But uh, I kind of agree with Badenoch here. Sorry, everyone. I'm not so fussed that menopause isn't going to be made a protected characteristic under the 2010 Equality Act, because you'd hope the already protected characteristics of age, disability and sex would have it covered. That said, understanding and therefore effective action is still very, very much lacking and things need to shift. What I'd like to see is all GPs trained in the menopause and HRT, HRT actually being available, and more sympathetic HR managers. You know, real world change rather than a legal tweak. Yeah, but that, you know, the government needs to lead that, doesn't it? It's not enough to go, we'll give you a menopause czar. Like... Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> okay. Great. What's the menopause czar going to do? What, you know? I just don't think making it... Like, it would, they're not doing the work with mm. the protected characteristics that are already there. So just adding some more in. No, I mean, no, I agree. I totally agree with that. I think I think she... She let herself down, shall we say. She's let herself down quite a lot over the years by being a fuckwit. But um, she let herself down, I would say, when she said that it was a, a left-wing policy. But, you know, it is. But then the NHS is a left-wing policy. Free school meals is a left-wing policy. Mm-hmm. It's quite a lot of things that are left-wing policies that, well, I suppose they're not doing very well. So <laughs> there you go. There's your answer. There's your answer. Vote Labour in the next election. So the, the Labour Party, I think it was Angela mm. Rayner, did come back and say what they would do. And actually, they weren't talking about a pilot scheme. They weren't talking about protected characteristics. They were talking very similarly, but, you know, less dismissively about having it as part of workplace culture and putting measures in to check that workplaces are actually doing it. And I think mm. that is that is the key thing for me. If you say you're going to leave it to the individual companies, then fine, but have measures in place that mm. check that they're doing it. I think the thing was that she came across, as you say, as very dismissive and a bit like, do you know what? I've got other fucking things to do with my day. <laughs> she actually Can said we just, we've like... got other stuff to do. So, you know, let's not oh, add did to she? our workload. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it would be fair to say that this is not the part of her remit that is getting the most attention, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, women, who cares? Happy International Women's Day! <laughs> <laughs> I'm joined by Kate McCaffrey, Assistant Curator at Hever Castle in Kent, to talk today about the new exhibition at Hever Castle, Catherine and Anne, Queen's Rivals Mothers. Very dramatic sounding. Kate, thank you very much for joining me. No worries. Thank you for having me on. It is quite a dramatic title, isn't it? But it is quite a dramatic sort of period as well in in the history of English politics, monarchy. Can you tell us a little bit about the exhibition and what people visiting it could expect to see? Yes, absolutely. And you have hit the nail on the head immediately. This period is full of the best of human drama, I think. I think that's why we're drawn back to it time and time again. And our exhibition focuses on two of the key players uh, in the early 16th century, 
two of the most famous uh, formidable women in the 16th century in Europe, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. They were the first two wives of Henry VIII's infamous six, and they were traditionally characterised as rivals. You know, they were rivals for Henry's love. They were rivals in religion, Catholicism and uh, reformist religion, and they were rivals for power as well. So so they've always been characterised as really polar opposites, but we're hoping that this exhibition can shed new light through some of my own research uh, into two of their prayer books on their relationship with one another, but also just on re-examining what we know about them both and, and what else they shared in common, because really they did share a lot in common. There was a lot that united them um, as well as divided them. This follows on from a previous exhibition, Becoming Anne Connections, Culture and Court, because Hever Castle is the childhood home of Anne Boleyn, right? Yes, indeed. We are the childhood home of Anne Boleyn um, and also the place that she returned to quite frequently as an adult in the 1520s. Uh, So we're using the kind of anniversaries, the 500 year anniversaries that are coming up over this next decade as an excuse to explore uh, some new exhibition material. One of these things is there is this prayer book. So we have these two prayer books, in fact. We have Catherine's prayer book and we have Anne Boleyn's, and they're being exhibited alongside each other for the first time. It's not the first time they've been together under one roof, but it's 500 years since then, right? But it's the first time they're being exhibited together. So... Can you tell me like what what the significance is? Because obviously what happens to the church around these two women is, spoiler alert, it's kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> it absolutely is a big deal. It changes the face of England, but also Europe um, in terms of the break with Rome, with the Catholic Church in Rome, which Henry VIII oversees uh, through his marriage to Anne Boleyn and his annulment uh, to his marriage of Catherine of Aragon. So These two women are are at the pinnacle, really, of the religious change that's happening at this point. And we're using these two prayer books as a way in to this very tumultuous um, time period. But the significance of them being together is really huge and and quite sort of far reaching. Mm -hmm. It was during my research with our book, so Anne Boleyn's book, which has been at Hever for the last hundred years, I did a close study of that book and realised that Anne was not the only leading 16th century woman to own a copy of this same prayer book. And in fact, Catherine of Aragon owned one as well, which was completely new information that we didn't have about these two women. And it comes from a really important time. Uh, It's a sort of 1527-1528 is when these books were produced. They were printed in Paris by a very prolific French printer. And then they were disseminated in 1528. And by this time, Anne Boleyn has accepted the king's proposal of marriage. So she knows she's going to be queen. And Catherine of Aragon um, is still his queen. He's not managed to divorce her or uh, annul his marriage to Catherine at this point. So it's a really interesting dynamic of queen and queen in waiting between the two women. And Anne and Henry don't get married until 1533. So it's a lot later uh, that, that Anne has to wait. But... The fact that these two books are a really rare glimpse of a moment of unity between these two warring women at a time in their lives when they are perhaps at their most uh, divided is a really interesting way for us to, I think, re-examine what else they shared in common other than just a prayer book and just a husband. And so the 
the, the lens that we're taking is, is through these prayer books, but widening it out to what else we know about them both. And what's particularly interesting is these books have been both decorated and used differently by both of the queens. So although they are books from the same printed batch from 1527, they have been decorated and personalised for each woman. So Anne Boleyn's book is decorated to a much higher level than Catherine's. She has extra gold borders, red and blue corner decoration, inscribed images that Catherine's doesn't have any inside. Uh, so we've got them on display in the same room on the same page so that you can see the visual differences across both copies. And I think the decorative differences are a really intimate insight into the place of both of these women at this time. Anne is going to be queen one day and she knows that. So her book reflects that. It's a very queenly book. It's an emulation of status compared to Catherine's. It's sort of one star is on the rise and one is on the wane. So although they're the same book, they're differently decorated and used. And we're kind of using that same but different lens to look at Catherine and Anne as well. I wanted to ask you a little bit about perceptions around these two women I think it's interesting in in what's said about one and what sort of Mm -hmm. isn't said about the other Anne is depicted as a sort of almost sexy witch like she's (laughs) uh, she's turned a married man's head she's allegedly got additional fingers she's young (laughs) she's good looking or whatever she's hopefully or he hopes rather going to give him a son because she is quite young at this point, isn't she? I wondered how much control would she actually have had over any of these sort of circumstances and, and, and the situation? And also, crucially, did she actually have an additional finger or has that been made up <laughs> to perpetuate this sort of witch image? So as far as we know, she did not have an additional finger. There are no contemporary sources that say that she had a sixth finger um, that comes from a much later time after her death, those reports. Uh, Perhaps there was a slight abnormality with a fingernail, maybe, where she had a little bit of an extra fingernail and something spiralled from there, but there's nothing reliable from her lifetime that suggests she had a sixth finger. I think that very much ties into those stereotypes that you mentioned of her being a witch or being a seductress, but being a very bewitching and tempting one um, who ensnares the king with her wiles. And that plays into this traditional narrative that we're trying to challenge in this exhibition. And that is one which is really quite one dimensional for both Anne and Catherine. And it it puts them into the kind of the wife and the Mm. other woman or the wife and the mistress. But that's reductive on both of their parts. It it really takes away a lot of agency and power uh, from both Catherine and Anne. Both of them were incredibly intelligent, highly, highly educated women. They were formidable and strong-willed and stubborn. Uh, I actually think we can sort of say Henry had a bit of a type. Um, He was attracted to these very strong personalities. And Anne was younger than Catherine at this point. Catherine was older than Henry when they got married. So by this point, Catherine is sort of past uh, childbearing age and Anne isn't. And Henry obviously hopes that Anne will give him the son that he so desires. But in terms of Anne's kind of agency at this time, over Henry and over the situation around her. I think it's really important that we reappropriate and reapportion the blame on this situation, which is easy to blame Anne as the third person in the marriage. 
and sort of direct that back at Henry himself, at the king, because none of this would be happening without his direction. He has ceased sexual relations with Catherine years before he turns his eye to Anne. So his, in his eyes, I think in some ways, his, his marriage to Catherine is over before Anne even enters the picture. He's had other affairs. This isn't the first time his, his eyes wandered. He's even had an affair with Anne's sister, Mary Oof. Boleyn. He, you know, keeps it in the family. Mm. So he, he really, I think, is the linchpin of this. And I think whilst Anne and Catherine themselves couldn't have done much without Henry's say, we also have to balance that with the fact that Anne is an opportunist and she's a very good one. I think she sees the opportunity to become the king's mistress. She says no to Henry. She says, I'm not going to just become your mistress. You know, you can have sex with me when we're married. And that's the bottom line. She waits for marriage. And I think that's in part due to her seeing that her sister Mary was used and discarded by the king. And she doesn't want that to happen to her. But also, I think it's in part to Anne's piety. And I think this is something that hasn't really been credited to Anne is is her piety. We associate Catherine, I think, very much with being the pious, mm. loyal wife. But Anne was incredibly pious as well, um, as these two prayer books show, both of them using them. And Anne, I think it was rooted very much in, in her idea that she didn't want to have sex before marriage. And she was also concerned with the legitimacy of the future children that her and Henry might have. But Anne at this point really is also directing uh, religious policy, which again has not really been attributed to her, I think, as much as it should be. The creation of the Church of England, which obviously coincides with Henry's need to end his marriage to Catherine and begin a marriage with Anne, really stems from the texts and ideas that Anne has encountered and is passionate about and introduces Henry to. She places, for example, a, a prohibited text at the time by William Tyndale uh, called The Obedience of a Christian Man. She gives this text to Henry, to the king's own hands, and tells him he should read it. And in that text are the words that uh, the king should not be accountable to the Pope, but should only be accountable to God. It essentially is a really radical idea that, that the Pope is not necessary. And this basis is the whole foundation for the Church of England and for the break with Rome. And that, that's carried forward in terms of practical policy by, by reformers like Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer. But Anne's the one who plants these ideas and influences the king because she knows both from her own pious religious beliefs that this is something important to her. But I think she also knows that it's a way forward to becoming the queen. So she really is a driving force as well. I think there's a real balance between not blaming Anne for, for being the mistress or the other woman, but equally giving her enough agency that she was still having influence and actions uh, behind the scenes. She was pulling strings. I'm going to come on to Henry in a minute, but I want to talk about her rival, in inverted commas, Catherine yeah. first. I feel that she's almost written out of the story after this mm. divorce. Like You're kind of like, well, you know... She's Mary's mum and the history books tell us that Mary wasn't a lot of fun uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and we don't like her very much. But like, what actually happens to Catherine next? So Catherine, again, I think it's important to give her back her influence in the situation because Catherine, as you say, has been probably quite easily written out. I think she, she fades from 
importance, in inverted commas, in the traditional narratives, maybe in the late 1520s when Anne's star begins to rise. But Catherine did not go down without a fight. She was the daughter of Isabella of Castile, who was the famous warrior queen in Spain. Like Catherine was royalty born and bred and she knew it and she knew that her rightful place was to be Queen of England. She genuinely believed herself to be the true, one true wife of the king and the one true Queen of England. And she was very stubborn. She was not going to give up and go quietly. She could have gone quietly, perhaps to a nunnery and sort of faded from history and let Anne become queen, but she was not going to let that happen. She died stating that she was still the, the one true Queen of England. And I think there's a great example of that in 1528 at the Legatine Court of Blackfriars, where um, Cardinal Campeggio from Rome is sent over to kind of preside over the first trial about the ending of, of Henry's marriage to Catherine. And Catherine herself comes to this, this court and gives such an incredible presentation of herself that she manages to delay proceedings uh, for another five years. She She demands that the court in England cannot rule on her marriage, but in fact, uh, Rome should be the only people ruling um, over the validity of her marriage. And she refers it back to Rome, knowing that they won't be able to refuse that, that the Pope will have to come in and then take action himself. That really sums up her refusal to go quietly. And in some ways, perhaps controversially, if she had gone quietly, things could have been easier uh, for her daughter, Mary, um, who had such a tumultuous relationship with Henry at this time um, and going forward. But Catherine didn't. She stood by her own principles. I think Mary learned a lot from that as well. And, and again, Mary and Elizabeth's stressful, mm. tumultuous relationship is mapped from their mothers, Anne and, and uh, Catherine. But, but Catherine, yeah, she really was a stubborn fighter. Another great example is she led she led the, the English forces to victory against the Scots at the Battle of Flodden. And she was fierce as well. She she wanted to send the severed head of the King of Scots to Henry VIII, who was in France while she was acting as regent. Um, but she thought it would be too much for the English sensibilities. <laughs> like Catherine was really, you know, she, she was not afraid to um, be fierce and strong. And that's something, again, I think that, that is lacking from the traditional narratives around her. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't want to make this about a man, yeah. but there is a man at the centre of all of this chaos. Henry VIII, obviously, he is the source of the chaos. He is. Over the years, Henry has been sort of characterised as this kind of, like I don't know, mead-swilling, terribly important kind of guy. A lot of what remains today started with him in terms of like the political landscape um, of of England, the Church of England mm -hmm. for a start, and he gave more powers to the commons and mm -hmm. so started that kind of trajectory. But all of it is for his own self-interest. It's not out of like any real desire to switch up the church or, you know, make, make the political landscape better. It's to get him what he wants. And I think we sort of see him as this strong leader and I sort of think of him almost as this kind of like Boris Johnson-esque <laughs> figure. Like mm -hmm. his decisions are motivated by himself. He, for want of a better expression, he can't keep his dick in his pants. And absolutely, actually, he's pretty unpleasant. Do you think that is a fair kind of summary of him or, or have I done Henry dirty here? 
<laughs> I mean, I'm definitely team wives over team Henry, but I would say in his youth, when Catherine first married Henry, they were seen as like this golden couple of Europe. They were the Renaissance king and queen. You know, he was very educated. He was supposed to be great at music and poetry and sports. He was very tall and attractive. That's the kind of younger version of Henry. I think by the time we get to the to the 1520s, the late 1520s, you know, he has been having lots of affairs. This seven-year kind of courtship of Anne and battle with Catherine to marry Anne I think is transformative for him. And then Anne's downfall, I think is the first time you really see how incredibly ruthless and scary he can be, um, how he turns on this woman who he's pursued for seven years, turns on her in a few months and, and you know, has her executed within a matter of weeks. Like it's, it's quite terrifying. Yeah, and she's not the only one. He's like exactly. fine with lopping a head off if it gets him what he wants. It's he not is. nice, is it? No, and then he does the same to her cousin, who is his fifth wife, uh, Catherine Howard. Like, he he has a track record. I think you're quite accurate in saying that, that most of his policies were to do with his ego and his greed. And I think he was an opportunist as well. He took advantage of, of, of opportunities for his own um, power and his own means. What's interesting about Henry is he did definitely die a Catholic, although he sort of broke with oh. Rome... And he, you know, established the Church of England. At heart, I think he was still very much a traditional religious man. That's the kind of era that he was raised in. Anne was younger. She was raised in France around all these kind of reformist ideas. But Henry was very much raised in this traditional Catholic religious. You know, a few years before, in the early 1520s, he was called Defender of the Faith by the Pope for writing an anti-Lutheran text. So... He's very kind of swings from one to another. And I think his religious changes were much more to do with the convenience of that politically, like the power of becoming the supreme head of the church, rather than his own personal religious convictions. He did, by all accounts, die as a traditional Catholic man. Um, so I think, yeah, very much he seems to have, have swung as suited him um, and his ego. Almost like, you could say, being pro-Europe forever and ever and ever and mm -hmm. ever and then suddenly deciding you're actually anti-Europe because it might see you end up as prime minister <laughs> and you, you get your buses out and um, jobs are good. And... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They never change. These awful men, they never change. They're anyway. In power. Power corrupts. You kind of answered this already. Mm -hmm. The Tudors and the Stuarts but really the Tudors. Those are the sort of dynasties that have always really captured the imagination of people. And there must be, I don't know, there must be thousands of books and plays and films and TV programmes made about them. Why do you think they continue to fascinate us? Is it just the drama? I think the drama is a huge element of it. I think, you know, their stories today would make the perfect soap opera. It's wives and mistresses and murders and executions and intrigue. It's it's like all the elements that you'd love in, in watching a modern day drama. But I also think that there's something compelling about the key players as individuals. For me personally, I've always been drawn to the history of women. And I think the 16th century 
in terms of women in power is a hard century to go past. Um, women like Anne Boleyn, Catherine of Aragon, all of the wives, but and in, in Europe as well, Catherine de' Medici, Elizabeth I as well, come on, Mary I as well. I think there's a lot of interesting um, reappraisals that have been happening over the last 50, even 20 years into these characters, the ones that have been traditionally typecast into their stereotypes. And I think that's what makes it interesting today is that we are re-examining the stereotypes and the one-dimensional caricatures. And we're looking beyond Bloody Mary, for example, to look at Mary I as England's first queen regnant. We're looking beyond uh, the stereotypes of Catherine and Anne as the wife of them and the mistress. I think there's something compelling in trying to uncover the voices that have been lost and covered over by traditional, often misogynistic histories that have been written. For me personally, that's what attracts me, is recovering the voices of these women um, beyond. It's We're in a post-Sixth Musical era. We're looking at her Half history, six. not history. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think that's what keeps it really relevant today, beyond just the, the kind of exciting drama of it, is the relevance of the themes that still resonate today, which is all things like you know trying to recover these lost voices, particularly, I think, of the, of the women. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Can you tell us when the exhibition is running and where we can follow Hever Castle on the socials? Of course, it will be running until the 10th of November. So you've got most of this year. Catherine of Aragon's book will only be with us until June. And then we have another exciting book coming, which more will be revealed about to replace that until November. And you can follow Hever Castle on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and myself and my co-curators are also all on there as well. So we're always posting. And what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is Kate E. McCaffrey. Brilliant. Kate, this has been really great. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much as well. Hi, Hannah here. So on Friday the 10th of March, BBC Two starts airing a three-part documentary about Frida Kahlo and I'm lucky enough today to be joined by its director Louise Lockwood. Hi Louise. Hi Hannah. And one of its executive producers Nancy Bournet. Hi Hannah. Thank you both for joining me. Watched it all in one go. I thought it was fantastic. Thank you. Maybe the best place to start is if we could talk about your experience or relationship with I don't really know how to word this with Frida Kahlo before you started. Maybe I'll start with you Nancy. I think it's probably different for different generations I don't think she was as big a star when I was a young girl as 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 she is now for sort of say my daughter when she was as a teenager but I do remember going to the Tate retrospective in the early 2000s and I think probably I had a kind of shallow understanding of her I knew she did loads of self-portraits I knew she'd had a terrible accident I kind of knew she was important and good but I didn't know why I think and and that's what we discovered in making the series I think and that's what I think has been so rewarding and so fascinating. Louise? Well I studied fine art in Glasgow so I kind of came across her that way but for some reason I don't even really know why I was looking in a different direction at that point and more sort of photography so I didn't, wasn't, didn't really massively engage although I kind of was aware of like some of the more shocking pieces probably her image mm. actually is the thing that I've been very aware of. It's everywhere, isn't it? More recently, I don't know. It feels like it's always been there, doesn't it? Yeah, because I was thinking about this and I, I did sort of get into Frida Kahlo, late teens, I would say. I suppose on a relatively superficial level because I think the most striking thing about her to me as a late teenager 
was that she had a moustache. I think genuinely that was the thing that really stuck out to me. And as someone who was fighting an endless battle against facial hair, I suppose I was just really curious about why she didn't care about it and why the rest of us did. Not that it inspired me to stop caring about it because, you know, social conditioning is one hell of a drug. But yeah, that was the thing that really struck me about her, I think, was that she didn't appear to care about what she looked like. But yet we're still hot. Yeah, like really, I've got moustache as well. And it's... (laughs) So that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. She's got an arresting image. You can't stop looking at her. And I think as we began, you sometimes you, you can approach a subject like that and think, oh, yes, everyone wants to look at her, but that's not the point. And in fact, I think that is the point because that's what she wants. That is part of her her art. That's part of how she's created herself. And by looking at her and by looking at how she presents herself and how she, like you say, unashamedly decides to say, I look like this and I'm beautiful, then it takes you somewhere quite interesting, I mm. think, in her story. I think what we've learned has become more apparent as well, or what we've noticed as well, is it's what she gives you, what she chooses to give you. It was interesting trying to choose a press picture, actually, to find images where she's directly looking at you, that, that actually capture her as opposed to a sort of performance of her. It was actually a really interesting exercise where you're like, oh, okay, that's a great photo. It's not really, you can't really see her. It's all the mm. It's all the kind of look and everything, and the colours are great, and blah, 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 but actually, there's nothing going on. It's quite interesting. Whereas other pictures that are a bit more candid or a bit more kind of, you, you get to see more of her. It's a bit more observational, obviously. Because what I was really struck by watching this was that so much of her stuff is about pregnancy and loss and grief and the loss of a parent. And I just, at that age, at 19, I wouldn't have been able to get my head around any of that stuff. I don't know that I was ready to know what Frida Kahlo's art was about at that age. I think that's really true. And we were to, I was actually talking to someone about that last night, about how there's sort of levels of her story that you kind of as you get older you you understand it better and I think that was true of us making it that actually also central to the story that we tell through her eyes but we are with her and Diego you know a lot of the time and and that love affair is is central to both of their lives and I think that we probably couldn't have understood that if we'd been younger people making Mm. this because the complexity of their relationship and the passion the unforgiving and the forgiving at the same time is something that you can't really comprehend in your 20s Mm. yeah and everything she did she didn't she did want a child she didn't want a child it's like and that kept changing I think but didn't and you see that like in the work like I mean you know it was a personal thing as well like my partner and I it was a very difficult long 10-year journey to get kids you can feel that in in little things that she wrote that then come out in the paintings and you're like no that's a just a deep deep sense of loss for like a huge part of her life which mm. was pretty sure anyway and we were predominantly female team a small team you know female editor across the series although some male editors who worked on it as well female producer had a co-exec male but so nearly all of us women and I and obviously Louise doing uh, directing and our female commissioner at the BBC mm-hmm. and it came to the fact that there was three or four women talking about it there was a kind of a shorthand to understanding the experiences that she's she's putting on the canvas and she's living through that we just all shared whether we'd had children or hadn't had children or you know being able to be at one with the ambivalences and the fear and the hope and the joy that that's all bound up in 
you know in 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 the same moment mm. and i think that it's interesting we were you know as approached by the commissioner to make the series in that in that she wanted us to to look at frida carlo through a, a female lens and if i'm honest there was a point early on i thought i don't kind of it's, this sounds stupid I thought I don't really know what you mean in that yes of course I'm a woman Lou's a woman Frida Kahlo's a woman but I think it's not until we got right into it that you think it is just about the fact that you understand without needing things to be translated mm. and so therefore can find things that are otherwise missed or or just the wrong things get highlighted and also yeah. what really interesting for us and this happened a lot in the series was that actually and and I don't know that, that this would be predicted but that we were more forgiving of Diego mm-hmm. we could understand the relationship mm-hmm. with Diego we could get past the fact that he's no looker we could mm-hmm. get past the fact that he's a horrific philanderer you could feel at one with her and her passion for him and her and the kind of that meeting of minds they had. I don't think I would have predicted that, but that definitely was the case. And I think we had an maybe an ease in understanding her relationships, both the ones that mattered and the ones that, I mean, they all matter, the ones that were kind of key for her and the ones that maybe were enjoyable but didn't really matter particularly. Mm-hmm. When we talk about women, particularly women that make autobiographical art in whatever field they're in, especially stuff that talks about pain, Sylvia Plath, Tracy Emin, Tori Amos, there tends to be a certain kind of, you know, eye roll that goes with it still now from certain quarters of, you know, God, women banging on about their pain again, as if, you know, men's pain is intrinsically interesting, but women's isn't. And I just wondered, was there much of that? Did you come across much of that at the time? Or is that sort of a modern perspective? Were people more forgiving of it at the time? Of a woman bearing her soul? I think a lot of her paintings were so shocking and so radical that I think that people maybe didn't quite know what to say about about those ones. There's the one like my birth and the Henry Ford Hospital, I think they just were kind of gobsmacking. And I think maybe the things that that are being said now are said because, like you say, there are more artists who are doing it. Mm. So it's like, oh, you as well. Whereas actually, you know, we were at various points trying to think about who else is her contemporary, if you like. There's lots of women artists, lots and lots of all, you know, in that space. But who else is well known? And there's almost nobody in that period and so she's not going to be being compared to other women and there's not a kind of eye roll and a yawn because people can't quite believe what they're seeing is the sense you got would you agree Lou? That thing isn't it about it's like so personal I mean it's like it's all partly almost therapy on a page isn't it so personal but that makes it completely universal that's what's like, I think, me personally as well, that re- I really connect with anybody that's struggled in those areas. I mm. think you can take something from that, even as a shared experience. And it, and it is it's sort of, it's. I think the word visceral gets overused, but, you know, like my birth is truly visceral on mm. in kind of physical terms and emotional terms. And it doesn't need translating in a way. And yet, however, what in the series when Ganit talks about it, she talks about it in a way she's at one with it, eye to eye level with it and make and 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 gets you to see, you know, see in it and and feel it even more. But yeah, no, I think Lou's right. I think it's they're they're so direct and so personal that they then mm. become about everybody. Mm. Actually, what Ganit says, 
she says nobody had ever been able to articulate those sort of feelings before and those sort of experiences in a way Frida did. And I and I'm not even sure if they have since. I don't think they have. We were talking about this, you know, there's been a lot of press about John Legend's wife, Chrissy Teigen, posting about her miscarriage. And that's been talked about because it's still like, oh, my goodness, no one talks about miscarriage. And you think and you look back at my birth and Henry Ford Hospital, it's nearly 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's still like it's bound up in pain and shame. And and that's not necessarily stuff that I wouldn't say that's all kind of put on us. And I think that's what's really powerful in both the Henry Ford Hospital painting that she does about her her miscarriage and in the diaries that we hear with her her friend is it's not about issues with a capital I and it's not about kind of feminism with a capital F either it's it's about life and Mm -hmm. the experience of being a woman Mm -hmm. that's the power of them and I think in a way to come back to what you said earlier at the very beginning I kind of feel that as a when you're young when you encounter these sort of stories and art like this although you haven't yet lived through any of those things or lived around them yet because you haven't lived long enough there's a sort of sense in which you kind of have a whisper of understanding that what this might be about if that makes any sense yeah it does can we talk about Diego because he has a really interesting dilemma in this that I think is replicated now still which is how do you make art if the only people that are prepared to pay you for it are capitalist pig dogs which would have been his thought i'm a journalist i've been a journalist for a long time back in the day it was hard to get into journalism but at least there was the avenue of local newspapers etc it's really hard now and i think the principle that a lot of of journalists that i know held when when we were younger which is i would never work for murdoch is probably out of the window now because there's a really limited number of titles you can work for and you would be daft to turn down an internship Mm -hmm. on a murdoch paper just because of your principles. And that was that was the problem he had, how to be a communist and actually paint when the only people that have got money are the Rockefellers. How, how do you feel about that dilemma? I don't know if he had a choice. Well, he, he just, I think Stephanie says it, he just wanted to paint. And that sort of side of it where you're like, well, he kind of was trying to do it from the inside. Like we tried to sort of achieve that with the sort of increments of what he was doing with each of the mural that we covered, especially when we were sort of in the States. And we start with the one that he does for the stock exchange, which I mean, the stock exchange yeah. <laughs> was his first like, you know, US commission. And then in that one, it's sort of it's subtly in there, like his kind of view. Look how wealthy you are, but look how wealthy you are with your land, with your your minerals and your oil and look what you could do with it and that's the question I think he sort of raises with that ultimately ends up putting Lenin in one in the Rockefeller Centre so each time oh yeah it's Ford crikey Mm. where he's glorifying and celebrating the worker who Henry Ford's just laid off loads of them and you know authorised the the murder of well attack on the protest which results in four murders yeah it's really hard because you kind of like when you see them and that was I think one of the most interesting things I'd never seen his work before when you see them you're like they are incredible mm. they're so incredible and so powerful and really stunning and you're like right you can the world is a better place for them but if it was not having it or having it with their money and in a way there's some sort of something quite poetic about the fact that Ford paid for that and is glorifying the workers mm. I think lovely yeah. 
And that still stands and that's still here. Yeah. Yeah. And we also, we were very keen to kind of think about the fact that this is a very different America and a different time. This is kind of New Deal America. And so the left-wing artists like him and Frida and lots of left-wing people in, in America, so there is like the incredible wealth of the Rockefellers and the Fords and the power of those big capitalists. But also there was the sense that another world was possible mm-hmm. and could be built or could be made and could be forged together and and that's kind of what they're living in and that's what you see them living in 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 mexico city Mm -hmm. and really at at the forefront where there's you know all artists coming there from across the world i mean like everybody someone says it in the program but it is so true everybody who was anybody in the artistic scene or literary scene in that period has spent a lot of time in mexico city it was kind of the only place to be and and they were you know as communists or as left-wing artists they were kind of at the forefront of that in terms of all this crossover of ideas so i think as artists they had to be at one with the fact that to make a living you've got to sell your work and the person who's going to buy it is somebody with money and so and and i think maybe the view he takes is that he is getting his ideas out there and his huge mm-hmm. murals they're like blockbuster films aren't they yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah knowing that mural in rockefeller center was destroyed mm-hmm. you know and thinking that's the 1930s the destruction mm-hmm. of art in the 1930s is really not a good look is it considering what was happening in europe <laughs> at the same time mm-hmm. it really jarred because it also looked like from what what you can see of it an incredible piece of art i'd never seen any of his art before either i was surprised mm-hmm. by how much i i really liked it did it need to be destroyed either because b had said she would take it at moma yeah and then it got destroyed so there was that something something went awry yeah. between Right, I'll have it. You can get it out. You, you know, your building. It's all about making money, and we'll take it in the gallery. And, but it's, uh, it's like Lisa says, it's so provocative. Yeah, and and I think that's the thing. It is a time of contested ideals, of contested worlds, and 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 so it's interesting, like you say, that art's being destroyed on in Europe in quite soon after that in a really dark way. But I think it makes you remember that art and culture are powerful things. You know, there's a reason that people get furious about certain works of art, certain works of literature, because, they, you know, because because telling people that the world could be different is can be a dangerous thing for some people. Yeah. Now, the other thing that, that kind of gave me a, a moral dilemma watching this was at the end when one of Frida Kahlo's paintings is up for auction and it's now worth a huge amount of money. And I don't know how I feel about that. I know, I mean, I don't know how I feel about art being worth that much money in general, to be honest. It is kind of out of control. It becomes an asset rather than a a work of art. But there's also something about something that's so intrinsically personal to her and I don't know, useful to the world, as in it creates this message, being in private hands and people exchanging it for that much money that makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Martha, who I interview at the end, I said exactly the same thing. <laughs> and she was like, I'm stopping you right there. And we didn't, we didn't include this because it was too long at the end of the, the interview. And she's like, that. listen, if you were talking about Picasso now, would you have said that? And I was like, uh, probably not, if you told me how much Picasso sold for. And that's when she's like, look, if a woman sells for that much money, it means she's valued. She's yeah. valued the same. And it's like, that's what is makes the difference and that's where money does count because money yeah. 
like a tick, isn't it? It's like, mm-hmm. yes, you're good. You, are, you have value. We've had this conversation a lot together, me and Lou, about the value and about the kind of the way in which she has been, you know, she's commercialised. It's often used as a stick to beat her, like it is for all female artists or female figures, you know, can't win if you do and can't win if you don't. You know, it's Frida Kahlo's used up because she's on every pencil case and, Mm. you know, T-shirt and whatever. But no one says that about Michelangelo. No one says that about Van Gogh. No one says that about Picasso. And I think... That and the and the monetary value in our society. That is how we judge importance. And it's like we've also talked about the fact of her as a famous artist and that thinking about other people and does it does it really matter about fame? But yes, it does, because that's also about her worth being judged. Mm-hmm. And we we were really keen and we do say it in the kind of opening to the series. We don't want to call her the most famous female artist in the world no she's actually one of the most famous artists in the world full stop and you couldn't say that if her work wasn't being sold for millions or she wasn't yeah on every single pencil case bit of graffiti even the woman who does the voice of Frida who comes from the same town as her Koyakan has a Frida Kahlo tattoo Mm -hmm. she's like what in her 20s I think Gabby's in her 20s I was thinking about Coco the Disney film which is actually a brilliant film. I love you know, it. Yeah. All the all right messages. And Frida Kahlo is, is in it, an interpretation yeah. of Frida Kahlo. A great, you know, get them in young. She is a caricature, obviously, of Frida Kahlo. How do we stop Frida Kahlo becoming a caricature in general and being a real a real person? I mean, obviously, make a three-part documentary about her is the answer, and you've done a great job well, on yeah. that. <laughs> but I don't think you can. And I think, in a way, I think we shouldn't worry. Whether they're really like excited that she has a monobrow or they want to kind of understand her story deeply or really study her art. I don't think it matters. And I think also I do feel that's part of what sometimes what's done to us as women and what we do as women in that we worry about the representation when I think what we should just do is just be represented. Just telling it any way and every way is a good thing, you know. My son watched Coco when it took, was at the cinema whenever it was that it came out. And I think you sort of think you know her and then maybe you'll get to her, get to yeah. know her properly as you get older. So I, I don't mind. I think like anyway, you kind of get your car, Frida Kahlo is good. Oh, yeah. Come for the pencil case. Stay for the story of absolute tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. Can you? So that's yeah. yeah. Great point. Thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating. I recommend that everybody gets tucked in on the on the 10th of March. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we slide across the pitch on our knees in celebration of all things women's sport. First up, congratulations to Arsenal, who came from behind to beat Chelsea 3-1 at the weekend to win the Continental League Cup. Despite Sam Kerr putting the West Londoners ahead in the second minute, Stina Blackstenius equalised in the 16th and Kim Little converted from the spot in the 24th. Sad times for Neve Charles, who scored an own goal during injury time at the end of the first half to put Arsenal another goal to the good. The old trophy cabinet has been looking a wee bit dusty up in North London for a little while now, so let me chuff with that. 
I promised you a big deal in women's sport and a big deal you shall have. It's in the US, not here, sadly. But nonetheless, I think it's an indication of a shifting mindset and I'm for it. And, you know, we'll always have Arnold Clark. We won it, by the way. Of course we did. Across the pond, recently it was announced that financial services company Ally had struck a multi-million dollar sponsorship deal with Disney, in which it will apportion 90% of its investments solely to women's sport, including coverage of actual sport, branded content and features. The remaining 10% goes to men's sports advertising. Why Disney? Well, they own ESPN, who are a major player in the sports media world over in the US. Now, this is huge really when you consider that women's sport accounts for less than 10 percent of all sports media coverage the proportion of all sports sponsorship allocated to women is minuscule so i think we can all agree that it's absolutely great news that the financial services industry wants to flog more stuff to women you know now that women can have bank accounts and pockets for their loose change and all that I'm being a bit facetious here. I do think it's a good thing. I just think we have to remember that these aren't altruistic choices. But it is heartening nonetheless to see that brands are starting to believe that women's sports are worthy of investment. It's been pretty fucking obvious to women for a while now. What I would say to them is good luck finding that content. A cursory glance of the ESPN.co.uk homepage this morning shows me that there is not one single story about women's sport on there. Is that because their women's sport is covered by its very own site, ESPNW.com, I hear you ask? Yeah, maybe it is because the very, very heavily WNBA Wade site exists that ESPN over here hasn't bothered to cover women's sports in the UK, but who knows? Over to Istanbul now, where the European Athletics Indoor Championships took place last week and Team GB fared rather well. Laura Muir took home a record fifth title in the 1500 metres, which makes her the most successful Briton ever in the competition, overtaking friend of the podcast Colin Jackson. Daryl Nita and Melissa Courtney Bryant won bronzes in the 60 metre and 3000 metre, respectively, on the same day. Gold medals were also bagged by Keely Hodgkinson in the 800 metres, retaining her title, and Jasmine Sawyers in the long jump, her first ever major title. Hodgkinson's gold comes 10 days after she shaved two hundredths of a second off her own British record at the World Indoor Tour final in Birmingham. The 21-year-old took home a silver in the last Olympic Games and at the World Championships in Eugene last year. It will be exciting to watch her in the run-up to the next Olympics next summer. Elsewhere in California, as she continued her preparation for next month's London Marathon, Eilish McColgan set a new British record in the 10,000 metres, shaving just over two-tenths of a second off the record previously held by Paula Radcliffe since 2002. Well done to her as well. That's all for me this week. I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, I just popped in to see what condition, which film's condition is in. I thought you were going to ask my condition, (laughs) and Mickey, my condition is not great. (laughs) I'm aware of that because I can one, see, and two, hear you. (laughs) This week, we watched The Big Lebowski, which, reminder, and also, spoiler alert, Mickey and I both placed at number four when we made a list of our favourite Coen Brothers films which I think was back when we watched Fargo. Jen, I don't think you've ever made such a list, but just to check in, had you actually seen this before? No, I hadn't. I've never seen it before. I think I tried to watch it before and I didn't like it. 
Oh, wow. Released in 1998, The Big Lebowski got mixed reviews, but almost immediately became a cult classic, often ranked as the best Coen Brothers movie. It's one of several of the Brothers films to be produced by the British firm Working Title, a relationship which goes some way to making up for the amount of Richard Curtis nonsense they funded over the years. (laughs) Now... When I say cult film, I really mean it. An annual fan conference, Lebowski Fest, does exist. And the UK has an equivalent, The Dude Abides. There's also a religion, in quotes, dudism, which I think I'm probably accidentally (laughs) already practising. If you're looking for some more traditional gauges of its success, in 2014, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, which I feel like we actually haven't said in a while. I just got bored of saying it, if I'm honest with you. (laughs) And at the box office, it more than trebled its $15 million budget. So, who's in The Big Lebowski? Well, it might be easier to say who isn't. It stars, brace yourself, Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, Julianne Moore, John Turturro, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Peter Stamari, David Thewlis, Sam Elliott and Ben Gazzara. Ben friggin' Gazzara. And I'm not done, because while the late 90s couldn't seem to get enough of the fact that Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers is in it, (laughs) it's less often noted that the four-toed nihilist is played by double Grammy Award winner Amy Mann. And I'm still not done yet. You know sometimes when you remember lockdown and you can't really believe that it happened? Mm. Yeah? Yeah. Well, Tara Reid is in this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it could have been strange to see, since Marlon Brando was the brother's dream casting for the role of The Big Lebowski, but was too ill to take it. The film's music was, let's call it curated, by regular collaborator, former Dylan guitarist T-Bone Burnett, I say curated because Burnett was going to be credited on the film as music supervisor, but asked for it to be music archivist instead as, quote, I wouldn't want anyone to think of me as management. (laughs) And if that's about the most Big Lebowski appropriate anecdote you could imagine, have another one. According to Joel Cohen, the only time he ever directed Bridges was, quote, when he would come over at the beginning of every scene and ask, do you think the dude burned one on the way over? I'd reply, yes. So Jeff would go over into the corner and start rubbing his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so let's get to the plot, which I'm going to keep short because, as it turns out, most of it is entirely superfluous to the film. Yep. In an early 90s Los Angeles, Jeff, the dude Lebowski, is a simple man who, in the best line of the film, describes his hobbies as... The usual, a bowl, a drive around, the occasional acid flashback. (laughs) He finds himself seriously out of his fucking element when he gets caught up in a very Cohen scheme involving mistaken identity, a kidnapping, a marmot that's actually a ferret, a Pomeranian that's actually a Yorkshire Terrier and a stolen rug. It puts him at odds with a millionaire, a group of German nihilists who want to cut off his Johnson, a pornographer and his henchman, an artist looking to get knocked up, a 15-year-old whose dad is in an iron lung, the police and, often, his NARM-obsessed best friend, Walter. Everything works out surprisingly well in the end. The end. So, I wanted to open with a question. Which film do you think has more fucks per minute? The Big Lebowski or Glengarry Glenross? Glengarry Glenross. Unless oh, this I don't is know. well, this is a trick question, is isn't it? it? But also the 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 f bomb, as John Goodman described it in an interview about the Big Lebowski, it features very fucking heavily. Mm. And in fact, John Goodman said he was a little bit nervous about the language, but 
I mean, Hannah might be about to tell us this. Jeff Bridges and he had a chat about the musicality of it and like the the fuck and the man and the way that they place them and the kind of rhythm of it. So yeah, I think there's probably loads in there that you don't even notice. So I'm going to go for the Big Lebowski. Yeah, it is the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I didn't notice, but I was actually asked by my publisher to take some of the fucks out of my book before it was published. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. I found it amusing that I said I was going to try and swear less on the podcast and then went straight ahead and picked this film. Jen, never seen it before. That really surprises me. I started watching it, I think, and I didn't like it, so I stopped. I remember when it came out, and I remember um, the friendship group I was in at the time, you know, there's quite a lot of quite a lot of weed smoking, and all of the boys, like, loved this film, like, absolutely mm. loved it. And I think I just thought it was a bit silly. Uh, and I think I also thought that all of the people in it seemed like 9,000 years old. And obviously watching it now, <laughs> that is not the case. And it's a bit <laughs> alarming. They're our age. So, yeah, no, I hadn't seen it before. Not properly. Not in a committed way. Anyway, I felt quite differently about it this time around, I will say. It's going to make the next five minutes easier, yeah. certainly. <laughs> Mickey, tell me about the first time you saw The Big Lebowski. I didn't see it at the cinema. I didn't go and see it. I think I only saw it on DVD. So it must have been a few years after its release because we were still back in the days when obviously you had to wait a bit before stuff was available. But yeah, it was with a group of people who absolutely loved it and were obsessed. I understand that can sometimes either really draw you in or be really off-putting because mm. you feel like an outsider. And I think it would be quite easy to feel like an outsider watching The Big Lebowski because they're all sort of such insiders together. But yeah, I just fell in love with it. I think Jeff Bridges is incredible as the dude. Just Walter always made me anxious, still always makes me anxious. But I think Mm. Jeff Bridges is just so chilled that he kind of chills you out as well. And I have obviously seen it a lot more since then. I have it on DVD, as with many of Hannah's choices for flicking and for rated or dated. And I have watched it a lot. But I must say, I haven't seen it for about 12 years, you know. Oh, really? When did you first and last watch it? I saw it at the cinema and I really liked it. But the thing about Coen Brothers films is there's so many of them. I've probably only maybe seen it two or three times since then. And I think I probably watched it in lockdown. Mm. Was the last time I watched it. So it will be that three years ago. And I do really like it. It's just not the first Coen Brothers film. Yeah. Well, it's number four, isn't it? So it's not the first thing I would reach for. I was talking to my brother on whatever night it was. And I said, I've got to watch The Big Lebowski for work. And he was like, oh, just mentioning it makes me want to go off and watch The Big Lebowski. It does drum up a lot of love. Interestingly, amongst non-Coen Brothers fans as well as I mean there are some people that this is the only one of their films they've ever seen and they completely love it. Yeah it's interesting because you quite rightly refer to it as a cult film but I think it's like one with the most Mm. broad appeal so many Mm. people love it that it almost breaks what a conventionally cult film would have as its audience I guess I think it is a lot more like you could appreciate it just for being a bit silly if that were your thing Mm. do you know what I mean like Mm. I I sort of Mm. think it's not I mean, it is, but I think a lot of Coen Brothers films are quite a lot deeper than this one maybe is on the surface level, if that makes sense. I think it varies. What's it about, given that almost all of the plot is for nothing? Mm. I did do a bit of reading on theories of what it's about. I did find one that uh, was in a book called That Rug Really Tied the Room Together (laughs) by a guy called Joseph Natalie, Natalie. And he says that what he thinks it's about is 
these guys are, are part of the sort of dropout post Vietnam nineteen seventies libertarian style world. And after Reaganomics of the eighties, you know, they felt really left behind. And now we're in the early 90s and these two cultures are clashing, the sort of older generation. Because it's interesting because art used to belong to the counterculture, but now in this, this is my theory, not his theory, now art belongs to posh people. Mm. Like, I mean, mm. she might think she's counterculture, but it belongs to posh people like Julianne Moore. Because this is set in the early 90s. And he reckons it's an antidote to all of the films around the late 90s that were all about money and the acquisition of money like Jerry Maguire. And I think that's an interesting theory. It was it was an alternative for people who didn't care about money, 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 or show me the money, or whatever. I can't yeah, think of that many films of that era that were about money. Well, Forrest Gump is another one that he mentions in that list. It's about sort of the the acquisition of, of incredible business success. Yeah, I suppose so. I do want to say... And much as I hate porn, I might actually watch more of it if Peter Stamari was here. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. It's so crazy funny. What I found really interesting in this film, I googled what are the best bits of the, the Big Lebowski and I found several lists that had like the 10 best bits, the 10 funny. None of them were the bits that I really love about the Big Lebowski, which I think is an indication of just how much shit there is going on mm. in it. The bits that really really make me laugh aren't the bits that seem to be the more famous bits every time philip seymour hoffman says dude cracks me up <laughs> when the the big lebowski says strong men also cry and they cut to him and he just does this really put on meaningful face and it's just perfect i love it when they're laughing on the phone um david Thinless and uh <laughs> yeah julianne moore it's so ridiculous and they're just laughing and laughing and he's just standing there like what the fuck is going on I love it when both the cars have just been smashed up and then they cut to them back in the car and they've stopped at, one, at the Burger Place. <laughs> and also there's just that wonderful line when the private detective comes in and uh, it's a joke, essentially, that the dude makes when he says, how are you going to keep them down on the farm now that they've seen Carl Hungers, which makes me just absolutely raw. I like that Philip Seymour Hoffman and the guy who plays the Big Lebowski kind of look like if Philip Seymour Hoffman had got older, he'd look like that. They look really similar <laughs> yeah. when they're sat next to each other in the car. I also, when when Donnie's ashes blow back in the dude's face, that always <laughs> makes me piss myself laughing. That is just so wonderful. And also, the bowling montage near the beginning, I think I could just watch that for a solid hour and a half. It's really, really relaxing. Mm. I like the ferret in the bath, obviously, um, but that just really made me yeah. laugh. And, um, yeah, the ashes are hilarious. And I like the guy, I can't remember his name, the the Hispanic guy at the at the bowling when he's Jesus. first... Yeah, when he's first on when, in his purple suit and he uh, trash talks them. That makes me laugh. And I just think Julianne Moore is just, like, fucking hilarious in it throughout. I really enjoyed her character. Let's talk about Maud, because... I mean, there is always a lack of women in Coen Brothers films. And to be fair, their film immediately previous to this, Fargo, was led by a woman and was very female-centric. What struck me watching it now, knowing lots of women that have just decided to go off and and have babies by themselves, between us, we probably know half a dozen women Mm. that have done that. She seems quite ahead of her time, Maud. Yeah. 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 I think her methods are questionable. Well, yeah. 
It's very expensive. Yeah, exactly. Plus, you get to shag Jeff Bridges. <laughs> you get to you get to shag the dude. I think that's a different kettle of fish to shagging Jeff Bridges. Uh, yeah, Hannah, I mean... each woman to her own kettle of fish, babes. No judgment. <laughs> do you know a lot of those clothes are Jeff Bridges' clothes? Yes, I do. Yeah. She is ahead of her time, yeah, definitely. I think she's, I mean, she's ridiculous, isn't she? She's a completely ridiculous character, but I just think that she delivers it, like, brilliantly. I really enjoyed her delivery of it. Well, that's it. They're all ridiculous characters. Yes. And all yes. sort of just one note, but exaggerated to the mm. nth degree, which is, is kind of Coen Brothers in certain films. I think, for me, it, it reminds me most of Raising Arizona in its silliness and it's kind of almost, it's almost fantasy, particularly with mm. the dream sequences that, you know, every time he gets knocked out or falls asleep, we have those wonderful dream sequences. So, yeah, but the characters are insane. They're so exaggerated. Walter and that dynamic he has with Walter, I think you can actually see it repeated. Like just how influential the Big Lebowski is. You see that dynamic repeated in so many places. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in Shaun of the Dead. That's exactly that dynamic. I'm not sure I agree, but carry on. Like, as in the guy that is just just falling in his lap and he's like, oh, hang on, I've got to be the accidental hero. And then his friend, who's obsessed that he would do the job better and tries to take over constantly. Yeah, I think I'm thrown by just how fucking aggressive Walter is. And Nick Frost, not aggressive. Nicky and Ziggy Sabotka are very much that dynamic. You can't understand why he keeps taking Ziggy along Mm. because Ziggy keeps fucking everything up, but he does. I, Tonya... um, Sebastian Stan and um, Paul Waterhauser is exactly that dynamic. I've brought my best friend along and everything he touches, he makes worse. Mm. But it's still quite enjoyable to watch. But I am a big John Goodman fan. So there you have it. I'm a huge John Goodman fan, but Walter makes me very, very edgy. Very he didn't edgy. make me feel nervous, I have to say. I didn't, I didn't really pick up on that, but I can see why. His ability to make everything about Vietnam is, <laughs> yeah. is just priceless. And the joy that it is literally bowling is the reason that those two are friends because they're they're so different, aren't they? Like the the, the pacifist and the the war vet, just they're so different in their attitudes to life. The thing that melds them as buddies, as best buddies, is bowling. The bowling, I think, might be my favourite bit of the film. I fucking love being in that bowling alley with them. Well, unless you consider that perhaps they've been friends forever. And he stuck with him because he didn't get drafted and John Goodman did get drafted and that was the difference that made him like that. Oh, interesting. I've always just assumed they met at the bowling alley, but I'm I'm happy to be wrong on that one. I mean, I don't know. I I don't think there is a right answer. I've got to say, Jesus is a bit... uh, I think John Turturro is... is, I mean, incredible. But, like, why the fuck is he even in the film? (laughs) It is a bit like that. They've just gone, we've got a great little character role. What does he bring to the plot? Absolutely fucking nothing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's a bit weird, isn't it? Watching him, just the the door knock stuff he has to do because he's a, what they would call a pederast. It's just... it's, It's so odd... And uncomfortable given the rest of the film it's it's weird i don't think it doesn't fit but it also doesn't fit <laughs> it, it occurred to me when i was watching it this time that i've always just believed what walter says there is true mm. but that is just a walter story exactly. i mean it might not it might not actually be true yeah going back to those dream sequences i usually don't like that kind of shit but i, so I just good. i absolutely love it i mean a just dropped in it's just the perfect song for it and and 
Jeff Bridges dancing is just amazing. <laughs> like genuinely amazing. The music is brilliant. Like the soundtrack is really good. I'd, uh, really I'd good. suggest downloading it on your platform of choice, Jen. I, I have it. It's great. It's And the needle drops are perfect. The way they use yeah, it is so yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah. Yeah, that cover of Dead Flowers is amazing at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, the question, having just dropped in, to see what condition this film's condition was in. Rated or dated? Rated. Yeah, rated. Yeah, of course, rated. Well, that was easy. <laughs> wasn't it? What's next? The producers. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. Standard issue for all women.